right. Before we um, read the scripture that we'll put up on the screen, Galatians 2, 19 through 20, I want to revert back, uh, Trish, to the days at Wayland Baptist College when I was an English major, as well as a religion and speech theater major. I had three of them back then. Uh, they had me learn the difference between an oxymoron and a paradox. Uh, the scripture that we're going to put on the screen right now and read in just a moment could be called an oxymoron because Paul is talking to the church at Galatia about the living dead. That's a good example of an oxymoron. What are some other examples? Pretty ugly. Jumbo shrimp. Short sermon? No, we, we won't go there. Um, but what is a paradox? I, I believe this scripture fits more the paradox because a paradox would be two or more sentences that seem to contradict, but when you really look below the surface, there is a very important lesson to be learned. I guess one of the most famous paradoxes was George Bernard Shaw, who said, what a pity that youth must be wasted on the young. <laughs> or Oscar Wilde, who made the statement, the only problem that I have with temptation is temptation. <laughs> I think in the modern paradox world, all of you who are grandparents understand that grandchildren need things. And when 1L will take any one of our grandkids to the mall, she comes back and she tells me how much we saved. <laughs> I want to tell her, honey, please don't save me anymore because a, a paradox statement is, look how much we saved by what we spent. <laughs> what a paradox. Uh, the paradox today, though, in the scripture, we're going to read. Paul puts two statements that look like they contradict, but what an important meaning below the surface. Let's read it together. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Huh? I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is our prayer that you will speak through this scripture and help us to have blessed assurance of what you've already done for us and that we need not fear that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. We're no longer condemned. Thank you for that truth. But then, Lord, we pray you'll inspire us. We want you who live inside us to be revealed to others outside us. May others see you in us is our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. An old song of the church says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, 
but he washed it as white as snow. The first point I want to make is Jesus did pay it all. That is the way that we are justified. Uh, Dr. Uh, Captain Reginald Wallace has written several books about the victorious life. In one of his books, he talks about a true experience in the Civil War. A man by the name of White was drafted for the South to go fight in the Civil War, but he had a large family. His next door neighbor had no children. His name was Pratt. Pratt said to Wyatt, let me go in your place. So he went to the recruiting office and he used the name Wyatt. He used the draft number for Wyatt and he enlisted in the army of the Confederacy. Less than a year later, Pratt was killed, died in action. The record clearly showed that a man named Wyatt had died. A few years later, the draft people again found Wyatt still alive in the village, and they called him up before them, and they said, it's time for you to go serve. And Wyatt said, no, look at the record. When you look at the record, you're going to find out that I am already dead. They looked at the record. And sure enough, they said, you're free to go because according to the record, you're dead. Ooh, isn't that wonderful what the scripture just said? What it means to be crucified with Christ is that as far as eternity is concerned, I've already paid the price. Look at the scripture, Romans 8 and 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, my name was there. I, I, I like what Horatio Spafford wrote in that great old song, It Is Well With My Soul. One of the verses goes like this, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I'll bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. When you look at what Jesus did at Calvary and what it means to be crucified with Christ, the old Adam nature died on the cross with him and now there's no condemnation. I am free from the fires of hell. Back in the old covered wagon days, they frequently would draw their covered wagons with oxen. Now, you can't get much slower than a pair of oxen. One of the greatest fears they had as they traveled west was the prairie fire. One day, a wagon train, slowly moving west, was confronted across the horizon in the west with miles of smoke. There was a prairie fire coming toward them. Looked like they were going to be wiped out. But one man said, quickly, let's set a fire behind us. And they set a fire behind them. The wind blew. And then he said, now move all the wagons back here where the fire has been. And a little girl said, we're all going to be burned up. And the man said, no, we're going to be safe if we go and stand 
where the fire has already been. Let me tell you something. At Calvary, Satan tried everything he could, but all of the fire fell on Jesus Christ as he paid the price of your sin and mine, and because he paid that price, we are forever free. Now, how do we get that to count for us? Jesus died on the cross, and Paul said it counted for him. I'm crucified with him. I'm right there with him. I am in Christ. Are you in Christ? You know, the world tells you there's lots of ways you can get to heaven. I heard a preacher say, all those narrow-minded Baptists, they only believe they're the only ones going to heaven. I like what Vance Abner said. He said, we don't believe that we're the only ones going to heaven. We don't believe that a bunch of our guys aren't going to make it. (laughs) How does it count? Not by being a member of a particular church. Not by doing some nice, good things. I like what Paul wrote in Galatians 2.21. And we're going to set the stage for why he wrote the entire book of Galatians. Listen to Galatians 2.21. I don't set aside the grace of God. Because if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Now, the reason Paul had to write that You know, you you all, let me set the stage. You know where Galatia is? Right now, Syria is in the news, and of course, Turkey is in the news as Erdogan is sending uh, soldiers down into the northern part of Syria. But if you go straight north out of Syria and go all the way up to Constantinople and include Ankara, the current capital of Turkey, you have Galatia in the time of Paul. There were many churches that he established in his missionary journeys, and they were doing a wonderful job until some folks came up from Jerusalem and said, you know that Paul fellow, he preached you could be saved by grace. And we believe that too, but we also believe that before you're saved by grace, you've got to follow this mosaic law and that mosaic law, and it's a combination of fulfilling the law and accepting grace. Oh, Paul got red-faced. In fact, when you read the beginning of Galatians, he said, if I or somebody from heaven preach any other gospel than we've already preached to you, let him be accursed. Because they were adding a plus sign to the grace of God. Paul said, Christ is dead in vain. If anybody could be saved, just by keeping the law. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 really says it all. And I'm going to have to add a line to the end since when I did the slides, I forgot verse 9. So you look up here and then you just keep reading after the last sentence and you'll see an invisible line that may be the most important one. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And even that faith is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Now let's read. Not of works so that no one can boast. Can you imagine what this church would be like if we could be saved by our works? Joe would be up here saying, hey, guys, this is how I did it. 
Larry would be saying, hey, no, no, no. He didn't do near enough. This is how I did it. Pastor would be saying, oh, no, this is the way I got saved. But you know what? It doesn't matter whether it's a staff member or a deacon or any one of us in this room. When it comes to how we're saved, not a one of us can claim we did it. Remember what I started with? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Some of us like to read that. Jesus paid a little part, and I a part, you know. Sin left this little bitty stain, but together we did it. We washed it as white as snow. Let me tell you something. Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. At Hannibal LaGrange College in Missouri, Baptist College, in a youth ministry class, the professor came in on the final exam day and uh, said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to help you guys out. We're going to have a brief review before you take the test. And he began to go over things that had been on the review sheet. Everybody was feeling good. But then he started talking about things that weren't on the review sheet. My students used to accuse me in the speech class of anything I didn't cover in my lectures, we covered on the test. Well, on the review sheet, it didn't include some of these things. And students began to say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And he said, well, remember I told you at the beginning that you're responsible for the entire book. Uh Uh-oh. They got real worried in spite of the fact that they felt confident in their study, in what they had done. They now worried because they couldn't know everything in the book. The professor handed out the exam and said, keep it face down until everybody has their copy. They kept it face down and he said, okay, now turn it over. And they turned it over. The teacher had answered every single question and put those answers in print. And he said to those youth ministry students, he said, let this be a lesson of grace. The one who created the test took it for you. All you've got to do is sign your name and you get an A on the final exam. If that's not what it means to be crucified with Christ, I go to the foot of the cross and I sign my name and I say, it counts for me. Some of us are bleary-eyed because we watched the miracle of the ninth inning last night. (laughs) I, I frankly have to admit, I don't keep up with baseball until the World Series and the playoffs, and then I watch and I get bleary-eyed. But I want to give you a true life experience that I have. When we moved to West Texas, when I finished high school in 1962, they had such a hard time getting teachers out there that they provided houses right there next to the school for the teachers. And my parents were teaching at Hart School District. So we moved into that, and Plainview, Wayland Baptist College, was just 28 miles up the road. So I said, I'm going to start off living at home. We move in. The summertime, there's a frantic knock on our door. And they said, hey, our umpires didn't show up for this 
little ball game we have back here right behind your house. And, and we need somebody to come up. You're looking at somebody that never once in his life umpired. But my dad said, come on, Rick. We, we got to go out and umpire for these people. He went out in the field and was looking at all the bases. He said, you get behind the plate. Your eyes are better than mine. I want you to know something. That was my first experience umpiring a little kid's baseball game. That is my last experience umpiring a little league baseball game. Some of the grandmas in the church use language about my calls that would make a sailor blush. I did the best I could, but what I wanted to tell you about, there was this one little fella. He was so short, it would have taken a microscope to see a strike zone. And I thought, this little fella's going to walk because he's too small to even swing the bat. Sure enough, ball one, ball two, ball three, ball four. I said, take your base, son. He pushed his little cap back. And he looked over at his coach and he said, do I have to? <laughs> he was hoping to get on first base with a hit, a double, a single, anything, but he didn't want to be walked. Let me tell you something. In God's kingdom, there's only one way to get on first base, and that's through the grace of God. He's got to walk us. In fact, look at these two words that I'm going to put on the screen. Religion asks the question, what can I do to get to heaven? I don't care what religion you're talking about. Uh, even in Christianity, the, the people that are rules followers want to know, what do I need to do? But true Christianity asks the question, what has God already done? that I might have eternal life. Well, let's move on. Jesus paid it all, crucified with Christ. So now what are we going to do about it? We're not saved by works, but what kind of works does God expect of us? All to him I owe. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 12 and 1. He said, here's what I want you to think about. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of what Christ did on the cross, in view of what he does every day for us, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Once we've been saved, now listen to this carefully or we'll be misquoted and this will be my last sermon in this church. Once we've been genuinely saved, we can sin all we want to. But you know the difference? If any man really is in Christ, he is a new creation and he don't want to anymore. When God saved me, he saved me totally, including my wanter. <laughs> I want to present my body a living 
sacrifice. I want to do the right thing. I want the Spirit who now lives in me to have control of me. Listen to what Paul writes later in Galatians in chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. If we let him, the fruit of the Spirit will be nine things. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'd like to see the hands of everybody here that exhibits those characteristics all the time. Could I see your hands? Okay. As the pastor sometimes says, it's a good thing you didn't raise your hand because if you do, we lie and the truth is not in us. If we would let the Spirit, we'd be able to love people that are unlovely. If we would let the Spirit work through us, we would be patient with people. We would be gentle. We would have some self-control. Mm. How many Christians have wrecked relationships with no self-control, not letting the Spirit control them, and after they blurt something out and ruin the relationship, say, well, I just had to get that off my chest. Uh-uh. Self-control. I want you to see what Paul says in Romans that's going on in our lives. We don't always exhibit those things, but if we will ask God for strength, day by day, we'll be able to exhibit more of each of these. Here's what Paul said. So don't feel guilty just because you couldn't say you do all of them. I have the desire to do good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No. The evil that I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. For my inner being, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within our members. We have a saved soul in a body that's still flesh. And consequently, there's still battles that rage. Do uh, you remember the song, It Is Finished? No matter what Christ did at Calvary, there's a verse of that song that says, but now in my heart, the battle is still raging. Not all prisoners of war have come home. There are battlefields of my own choosing. I didn't know that the war had been won. But then I hear that the king of all the ages had won these victories for me, that victory is mine for the choosing. Oh, praise his name, praise his name. I am free. At an Indian reservation, a missionary was talking to an old Indian convert about what it's like now to be a Christian. And I think he explained it about as well as you could explain what Paul was saying here in good old everyday language. He said, two dogs inside. 
They fight all the time. Good dog, bad dog, fight all the time. The missionary said, which one wins? And the old Indian said, the one I say sick them to. <laughs> you see, when Jesus told his disciples that they would need to take up their cross daily and follow him, he was saying, you're going to have a challenge, a conflict every day, and you have to make decisions. Just because we made a decision for our soul, and that's going to keep us out of hell, doesn't mean that we've made enough decisions to keep some of us out of jail. <laughs> Consequently, we need to make the decision and ask the Spirit of God who lives inside us to take control. You know, the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It becomes habitual. The more you resist, the more of these fruits of the Spirit you will exhibit. I like what Ephesians 2.10 said. Re remember earlier we said that we're not saved by works, lest any man should boast? Now let's look at the screen. Ephesians 2 and 10 says, however, we are God's handiwork. Some translations say we're his masterpiece. Vicki, you didn't know Dewey was a masterpiece, did you? <laughs> we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. You see, if we will let the Spirit of God take control, we can be patient. If we let the Spirit of God take control each morning, say, I want you to make the decisions today, we can be like Jesus, and people will see Jesus in us. In my years as the Dean of Fine Arts and Communication, I got to travel in places around the world, and no, I didn't use taxpayer money. It was all gift money. Please, please understand, set the record straight or else I paid for it out of my own pocket. But 1L and I together got to stand in the Louvre Museum as close as we could get to the Mona Lisa and see that beautiful painting by Leonardo da Vinci. We went to Amsterdam one time with our jazz band, and we went to the Rijksmuseum and that huge painting of Nightwatch by Rembrandt, just amazing. But can you imagine if somebody gave me an easel and a canvas and a paintbrush, and I said, oh, I'll do Nightwatch, and I painted my version of it, what it would look like? Or they gave me the easel and the canvas, and I said, I think I'll do a Mona Lisa. I don't think it would be too good. But if Da Vinci could come into my hands and my eyes and move them, then I could paint a Mona Lisa. You see the difference? Some of us try to do it all on ourselves. Let me tell you, you're going to be the most miserable Christian in the world if you try to exhibit the nine fruits of the Spirit in your own strength. 
But when you let Christ in you begin to work out, you know, the Bible says work out your own salvation. Doesn't mean saved by works. It means let that spirit that's in you work its way out so that you will be able to paint that beautiful, beautiful portrait. Well, let's get to 2 Corinthians 3.18 as we think of sacrificing for Jesus and living for him. I believe that the more we sacrifice, the older we get, the more we obey him, then the more we become like him. Listen to this verse. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Wow. Let me put that in Wimberley English. That says, if we will let the Spirit control our decisions, every day we'll look a little bit more like Jesus. You know, they say that couples that live a long time together start looking like each other. But one night I've been married 54 years, she prays every day that that does not work out in, in this case. But you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes it, it looks, I don't know about that genetically, but I do know this. If we live for the Lord each day, we'll start looking more like him. We'll start exhibiting those fruits of the spirits. The old song of the church said, your life is a book before their eyes and they're reading it through and through. Hey, does it point them to the skies? Do others see Jesus in you? The Bible says the Christians were first called Christians. The disciples were called Christians at Antioch. And do you know that was not a compliment at that time? They said, hey, they look like a bunch of little Jesuses. I wish they'd say that about us. I wish somebody in Wimberley would say, hey, you know, you remind me of Jesus. There are three theological terms that we'll get to in just a moment after 1 John 3 and 2. Dear friends, now we're the children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, look at that, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now look at the screen. You'll see where we've been and where we're finally going to go. Justification. Free from the penalty of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. Where are we right now in the present? That's called sanctification. Old timers used to say, I'm saved and sanctified. They shouldn't have used past tense because sanctification is a process. We get a little bit more like 
Jesus. That's what sanctification means. We get more like him, and that means we start getting freed from the power of sin. But did you hear what I read from 1 John? One day it's going to be glorification. He'll come back. We'll go to meet him in the clouds. We'll see him as he is. And sanctification will be complete because we will be like him. Free from the penalty, free from the power, and free from the presence of sin. I'm going to close with the true story of three salesmen that went to a conference in Chicago. Friday, they were so anxious after that long conference to get home to Philadelphia. There was a traffic jam, and they were running late getting to the airport, and they were literally running through the lobby of the airport trying to get to their gate. They had a briefcase in one hand, a roller suitcase in another, and in their haste, one of the men had a roller suitcase that hit a table that had apples on it. A 16-year-old girl was selling apples in the lobby. Apples went everywhere. But these three men were so determined to make it to the gate on time, they didn't even look back. They got to the gate just as it was about to close. Two of the men went through, and a third one said, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'll call my wife, and I'll tell her I'm going to be on a later flight. And he went back to the lobby. He was so glad he did. Because there in the floor was this 16-year-old girl. And she was reaching for the money from the basket and trying to pick up apples. She was totally blind, but nobody was helping her. And he thought, God has put it on my heart to come back here. And he knelt down. He said, let me help you with these. And he picked up all the good apples and he put them in one basket. The ones that were bruised, he put in a different basket. And he said, we are so sorry that we did this. He said, here's $40. Maybe that will cover the damaged ones. Young girl got back in her chair and tears were still streaming down her cheeks. And she said, thank you, mister. As he was walking away, she said, mister, mister, are you Jesus? Let's pray.